0: We took the challenge and swapped
1: to Aldi. With Aldi, there's incentives to eat healthier and make your own food. You'll be able to make healthy meals without breaking the bank. The award-winning salmon is just beautiful. By swapping to Aldi over four weeks, we have saved
2: 479 euros.
3: Aldi, the home of swap and save. Shopping before switching to Aldi took place between the 21st of September to the 18th of October 2020 and in Aldi took place between the 19th of October to the 15th of November 2020. Participants received a gratuity.
1: and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, Gerry Scott.
3: Hi, and I'm the Yorkshire Post's political editor, Rob Parsons.
1: Um, I'm going to be speaking to some political cartoonists in a bit, which is really exciting. But as we speak to you today, things are changing in in lockdown. Where I am in London, we've just gone into tier two measures. But Rob, you're in Leeds, aren't you? You've been under those for a bit.
3: We have, yes, uh, as of uh, yesterday, today's Thursday. So as of um, yesterday, Wednesday, uh, Leeds has been in tier two or the high uh, high bracket. So uh, that actually, for, for Leeds purposes, didn't mean a huge amount of change because uh, household mixing was already uh, banned. Um, but I think the, the fear which local leaders have expressed is that uh, given that uh, what's happening in other parts of the north and the uh, escalating numbers of hospitalizations et cetera, it it could only be a matter of time before uh, Leeds and other parts of west yorkshire uh, have extra restrictions imposed on them so i think people are trying to you know take advantage of the uh, the pubs and uh, places like that while they while they can still still get to them it's a, a bit of a it's it's a worrying time for sure
1: it's looking bleak that's what i mean about it being that way for a bit in um, Leeds already because although we only yeah had the invention of tier 1 2 and 3 this week and um yeah them coming in on on wednesday uh, leeds is already under enhanced measures as such as such wasn't it with household mixing banned and things like that so it carries on it carries on and uh yeah so in london we're we're having the same and i think the fear is well the fear i don't know if it's the right word really is places like leeds and Sheffield as well and Bradford are going to tip over into the tier 3 which is the highest one which means yeah no household mixing indoors or outdoors you're not you're encouraged not to leave the area and it's essentially a a lockdown again do you reckon we're looking at a, another national lockdown
3: it's well. It feels like there's a certain amount of inevitability about it, doesn't there? I mean, obviously yeah. that was uh, the recommendation by Sage, which uh, the government's advisory panel, which emerged this week, and Keir Starmer's is now adding uh, his his voice of support to that. And and the 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 messages that we're getting from government seem to be that they're not dismissing that out of hand, but I guess they'll try and do it in a way that doesn't sound like they're doing it because Keir Starmer told them to, so they might not describe it as a, a circuit breaker because that was a phraseology that he he used. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, to get things under control, it sounds like uh, some kind of national measures may possibly be the only way uh, way out of this. And you know, you could argue that perhaps three or four weeks ago, before things started getting out of control, might have been the time to do that. But uh, it, it, it could be uh, perhaps to, t- to coincide with the, uh, the, the school bank holidays might be the less the least intrusive time to do it
1: yeah i mean boris johnson said he doesn't want to do a national lockdown hasn't he so inevitably that sounds like it's more and more likely by the day if we've learned anything from the last few years it's that if um the prime minister says that something's definitely not going to happen it almost (laughs) definitely will (laughs) but that's i mean that all sounds really bleak so um it's nice to be talking to some political cartoons today i've got um, the YP's very own Graham Madeira on our cartoonists who we're very lucky to have and also uh, Tim Benson who is the author of the book Britain's Best Political Cartoons every year he brings them all together if you you got a favourite political cartoon, Rob? Can you think of one? I've put you on the spot there.
3: Well, uh, uh, Graham's stuff is is fantastic, and you can see it every uh, every Saturday in the in the Yorkshire Post. He he does a bespoke cartoon for our, our print print pages. I, I know uh, the the ones that come most readily to mind were during uh, Chris Grayling's uh, ill fated uh, tenure <laughs> as Transport Secretary, uh, where he was a regular. Uh, he, he appeared regularly on our pages in, in various unflattering guises, particularly when the, uh, uh, the 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 railway system in the north uh, ground to a halt in the summer of 2018. So yeah, I think those, those it, it, his his uh, failing grailing stuff was uh, is, is was uh, pretty really caught the public's imagination yeah
1: let's hear from them because I find it I find the interview really interesting on kind of how politicians often want copies of cartoons even when they're not maybe portrayed very um in a very flattering light so um let's hear from Tim and Graham now so I'm really really excited because it's something that we really pride ourselves on at the Yorkshire Post to still have our own cartoonists and I'm really really pleased Graham thank you so much for coming on today
2: Jerry, not a problem. Look looking forward to it.
1: Absolutely. And I'm also I've also got here Tim Benson. Tim, thank you for coming. You are an expert in political cartoons.
0: Thank you. Yes. Hello. Is
1: that what they call you, the political cartoon expert? Something like that. World leading? That sounds yes. right, doesn't it? Yeah. That's something that's being thrown around a lot at the moment. The one, the tone, the one and
0: sadly only political <laughs> cartoon expert. I wonder why.
1: Uh, well, the reason that we're really having a chat today is because. Your uh, 2020 Britain's Best Political Cartoons is out later this month, Tim. Where you've collected a load of the best ones in the country. Now I'm gonna we're gonna have a chat with Graham in a minute because what three of his in this year, which is brilliant. Mm. But let's start off a bit, I guess, with the history of political cartoons tell me when they first kind of came
0: about well how far back do you want to go are we talking caveman (laughs) paintings
1: yeah scratchings on the cave yeah exactly (laughs) although
0: they say that the you know the earliest caveman paintings are actually drawn by women but uh, we won't go there um i suppose i mean what we're talking here this is a book of editorial newspaper cartoons Mm -hmm. it's not a i mean you can go as far back as the uh as the 17th century with the the likes of James Gilray, who was a printmaker. But basically, um, the medium I'm talking about um, are newspaper cartoons. And they started to appear at the end of the uh, 19th century when mass daily newspapers um, started to appear. And the problem with newspapers at the uh, outset was that photography didn't exist. Of course, So you couldn't put photographs in there. And even even into the 20th century, the technology for reproducing good images wasn't there. So aesthetically, newspapers looked very dull Mm because it was literally pages and pages and pages of text. And so the great thing about the cartoon, it it broke up those um, huge amounts of text and um, it was a kind of relief. And of course, editorial cartoonists—why they're called editorial cartoonists—is that they were there to support the editorial line of the newspaper.
1: Ah, interesting. So if I the see paper is-, is
0: left-leaning, you tend to have a cartoonist who's sympathetic with that, with with that sort of view. And the same if it's on the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, that's really interesting. So. When did we start really seeing, I don't know, when was the first modern political cartoon, I suppose, would you say?
0: The first modern one? Yes. Um, I mean, at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, they, you know, Punch um, was a very successful satirical magazine starting in about 1830 um, and going all the way up to only about to 20, 30 years ago. And and they carried political cartoons. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, it's really interesting because it's it's like I say, like at the at the YP, we've got Graham, who we're really proud of, and political cartoons still have an impact massively. I think there's a lot of regional papers and provincial papers that don't have anyone anymore. I mean, Graham, let's bring you in here. What what impacts do you feel your cartoons have? Your political cartoons have when you when you draw them and when they're published?
2: Uh, I think I think obviously with the, the introduction of social media, Twitter is has become a bit of a phenomenon really in terms of getting work out there. We do have a good pro readership who see my work in print. I do have a Saturday slot, so I've got them readers in the bag, so to speak. But using Twitter, I'm using it to its advantage in terms of pushing my work out into a global audience. So that can make a massive difference. Um, So in that respect, I'm I'm bringing in quite a lot of... uh, advertising in effect um, by the stuff that I produce I must stress that my cartoons don't necessarily reflect my political persuasion nor that nor that of the title that that, that, that they are produced for um, however it does provoke a lot of debate uh, sometimes vitriol which I welcome
0: you know yeah but that's interesting Graham because you know before social media, only people sympathetic to the political line of, the, of their newspaper um, would, wouldn't have a problem with the cartoon. Absolutely, Tim. Basically, cartoonists were preaching to the converted. But now with social media, you get people of all political persuasions Look, looking online and getting obviously very upset. Yeah. It's what I call a sort of subjective truth. Absolutely. You see what you want to think And
2: I, I do think that's refreshing. You know, everybody is entitled to their opinion on a particular cartoon, and that, that for me, is very, very welcome. All that does is drive traffic and increase um, the level of in- inquisitiveness, really, of the actual cartoon
1: kind of impact that you see on kind of Twitter and on readers, but what, what kind of impact do you think they have on I guess politicians and Westminster? Do, do political cartoons not necessarily just yours, but all of them shape political opinion? I think
2: a lot of, a lot of politicians have thick skins you know, they, they, they don't take them too seriously um, you know the politicians I've met are quite self-deprecating, you know, I've met Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson and they've all enjoyed my cartoons, despite them being not very flattering in any way. But they may
0: pretend to do that, Graham. Because it's, they pretend to like them. Correct. Because it, if they, if they put, it, put it over to you that they don't like them, that empowers you. <laughs> and it just encourages you to put the knife in further. <laughs> That's an interesting take, yeah. I mean, I can only take their word
2: as gospel, but, yeah, it's probably said with a tongue firmly in their cheek. But
0: I'll still happily ask it to... Uh, Accept the um, plaudits. I mean, respect. Steve Bell did David Cameron with the condom over the head, yeah, he's not going really to like that. Yeah, he was really irritated by it, and actually did the worst thing by telling Steve that you can only push the condom so far, <laughs> <laughs> and this just encouraged Steve to continue. That's terrific. That that's good. I mean, I had I my
2: Boris not so long back, and I I showed him one of him as a wrecking ball, and I just thought it's quite tame um but his instant reaction was he, it was a fa- sort of a 5 second pause he just says i absolutely love it so that just shows the the egotistical nature of the guy you know he he went for that one but. yeah
0: but you know the thing with car- politicians in cartoons is that they love appearing in them no matter how badly you you treat them because it shows their importance yep. on the political scene and winston churchill said that cartoonists shouldn't worry about appearing in cartoons; they should worry when they stop appearing in them.
1: So that's really interesting because, yeah, Graham's just said about how he thinks his cartoons are received, and Tim, you said that, like, say so that they really politicians want to be in them. Can they shape political opinion? Can no, they shape how people? No, no you don't think so. Cartoonists
0: have no influence <laughs> because, as I said, they offer objective truth.
1: Mm-hmm. If you've
0: got a left-wing cartoonist and a right-wing audience, they're going to hate it and <laughs> vice versa. So, so what happens you just preach to the converted and you just confirm people's prejudices and their beliefs rather than ever changing them.
1: I see. I understand.
0: Throughout the course of a week,
2: Jerry Tim, I can be accused of being left-wing <laughs> and right-wing at the same time, which is what I like. Because in. the editor likes paper to be balanced and
0: offer an opinion from both sides. We have no agenda. Yeah, some cartoonists like Christian Adams and Peter Brooks it's the sort of plague on all your houses approach.
1: But a lot of a lot of the politicians that you draw, Graham, end up asking for copies. Is that quite is that quite a normal thing? I would. Have, I,
2: I don't think I'm exclusive to this. I think other cartoonists will be contacted. I know for a fact Peter Brooks sells a lot of his. Morton Morland, Dave Brown, they, they're all established cartoonists who will. Have uh, had had offers from politicians or politicians' parties, etc. But, but
0: don't, et cetera, th- but don't the, politicians or... want them for nothing? They won't bloody pay for them because <laughs> in the old days, <laughs> exactly, they used to be given them for nothing. <laughs> Correct. You try and get money out of a politician. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about about the book then. Um, Tim, you were telling me this is what the oh, eighth edition. Yeah, yeah, it
0: is. Yeah. Uh, can we go back because I want to talk yeah. about that the, Graham is unique yeah. in that he's the only provincial... Uh, sorry, he's the only political cartoonist in Britain working on a provincial newspaper.
1: There we go. So that's why it's even better that he's got free... Absolutely, it's wonderful. Year. I mean, there
0: used, there used to be a great tradition in this country of provincial cartoonists. Yeah. And sadly, they've, they've all disappeared apart from Graham.
1: Well, actually, that's. I'm really glad you said that because I think you can see in the free cartoons that of Graham's that are in that are in the book this year they've all got a bit of a Yorkshire flavour to them And they? Graham do you want to talk us through them a bit because we've got the one on oh, Captain Tom haven't we we've got yeah uh the one with Rishi Sunak and uh Shakespeare and we've also got Pretty Patel with an ice cream on her nose but we are constrained a little bit by the fact that we're audio here so you might have to explain them a little bit let's start with um Captain Tom how did this come about?
2: Yeah, well, that that was an interesting one because that was the actual cartoon in the book was uh, a commission from the Jeremy Vine show after I appeared on there during a really, really hard lockdown. I was not just producing political cartoons. I was producing cartoons of uh, of poignancy, which he seemed to like, and he he kept picking up on them and, and displaying them on his show. So he got me on there to talk about that, and then we talked about the political stuff. And I'd actually done a few Captain Tom cartoons when he completed his his laps in his garden, just just quirky ones. Um, so they then got in touch with me and said, "Look, it, it, it's going to be his hundredth uh, birthday soon. We would love you to do a do a, a cartoon to present to him." Which I I said absolutely, yeah. So I got in touch with James, the editor, and we set a plan together, uh, arranged for a. JCT six hundred to chauffeur Drive. The artwork down to Bedfordshire to Sir Captain Tom's home. So that was just fantastic. And he opened opened his artwork live on TV. Did he love it? Crazy, yeah.
1: Did he love it? He, he did. He really enjoyed it. it. Yeah?
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really pleased with it. So again, from a cartoonist perspective, it's just nice to see reactions. You know, good or bad. You just want to know what the what the person's thinking who you've who
0: you've portrayed. No cartoonist wants to be treated with indifference. No, no. Absolutely right.
1: <laughs> the next one we've got is, yeah, Rishi Sunak and uh, Shakespeare seem to be uh, being taken under by the way. This was as he was kind of throwing out the £1.57 billion to kind of prop up culture, wasn't it? What was, the, what was your thinking behind this one?
2: That's right. It was just basically uh, a play on his generosity. You know, he's, he suddenly found a load of money to help out, uh, you know, with worker furlough schemes. Um, and for once, there was some money available for the arts. So I, he had to think of a good reference point for the arts. And Shakespeare is quite, quite a, a standout character. So I just had him sort of cast out at sea and Rishi offering a lifeline to them to him in the form of a, you know, a life boy with the £1.57 billion on it. So he is actually, you know, depicted as handing out money and uh, being, being of help, so to say.
1: Yeah. And then the last one we've got from the YP this year is uh, Tell. Tell. Uh, looks like, yeah, she's on, what, what's she in front of her? White-footed Dover with uh, ice cream on her nose. What was this
2: one all about? Oh, that was a that's a great one. For any political cartoonist, when you get a, a sort of a social media wrangle like that, you've got to go to town. So this was Pretty Patel, where she was challenged on Twitter by Ben and Jerry's ice cream over her stance on immigration. It just, well, it, it erupted into a childish row. They, she was quite vocal on, on immigration, and uh, they didn't believe in what she was saying. So they they took to Twitter to basically knock her down a peg or two, and then her her people, not necessarily her, her people responded, and it just became like a childish spat. So the old uh, ice cream scenario with the corn on the nose just, just sprung to mind because that's the sort of fun you would do as a kid.
1: What you can tell is, is, is an interesting one, and I'm glad that she's come up because um, I think Steve Bell at the Garden got in a bit of hot water, didn't he, earlier this year when he drew her depicted as a bull. And I, w- I was wondering, Tim, maybe you can weigh up. on. Is there a line that you shouldn't cross into a fence, do you think?
0: Ooh, that's a tricky <laughs> one because people get, as, as Graham said, people can get offended about anything. Yeah. And, and usually, people get offended by misinterpreting what the cartoonist is trying to say. Mm. But that Steve Bell one, Pretty Patel, she's been accused of bullying. Mm-hmm. So he drew her as a bull. Mm-hmm. And then they brought up the thing about her being, was it for her? She's a Hindu. Yeah, and it's this yeah, and that and right, the other. Yeah. So it's, it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous.
1: Absolutely. I mean, not, not all of them. Um of yours Graham would always touch on you know things that might might offend or anything like that but uh, is that something that you kind of consider when you're thinking what you're going to what you're going to produce
2: offending no it's not in my um in my remit, and I don't think uh, J- James the editor would, would go for that either I think we've got to poke fun be a little bit frivolous but don't overstep the mark and don't get too personal Otherwise, you, you could be in hot
0: water—not just yourself, but the the title as well. But don't you find when you get into hot water, it's because the reader misinterprets the cartoon? Possibly, yeah. I, I think I
2: caught what you said about Steve Bell's Pretty Patel just earlier. There, I think, I think that was just a simple misunderstanding. All he did was portray her as a bully because that was the whole wrangle in Parliament. He drew he, Boris with horns as well. He drew Boris with horns, and people didn't correlate the the the. Uh, the link there, and I, I just thought it was a bit—it was just crazy, really—how how much of an overreaction that was.
1: Our our characters, Tim, our characters like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. Have they, have they made it kind of easier for cartoonists because they're such big characters? You know, is it is it is that something that cartoonists find easier to depict, or does it actually make it harder because things are so mad?
0: I think it's I think it's harder yeah. because um, they kind of send themselves up. I mean, you couldn't create these people. If somebody, if somebody went had an idea for a TV show, TV series based on Donald Trump before before he he took up office, it would never have got off the drawing board because they go, "This is just unrealistic. It would never happen." And and these characters don't really exist, do they?
1: I fear they might.
0: I mean, and the problem is, Trump is beyond satire. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
0: he he says things the best satirists would write.
1: Uh, you know I mean? Just... We'll see we'll see what um what cartoons we get after what November the fourth. We're only really a couple of weeks out from the yeah. election now, so we'll we'll see what comes. I mean apart from, you know, I'll ask Graham about this in a second, apart from his own, but what are your favourite cartoons? Mm. I don't you don't have to pick particular people, but any particular themes or you can pick particular well, people if you'd like.
0: Well, I can't really answer that because if I answered that, then I'd only have one cartoonist—the cartoonist I cartoonist
1: pick—in
0: next year's book. So I have to stay very diplomatic and tactful and say I love them all, of
1: course, equally, like children. Yes. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Indeed. So, are there any in the last kind of year then that you'd like to? Say so you particularly enjoy, maybe not favourites, but you've also got a whole book of them. So you yes, i put them all in the book. somehow. They're all your favourites, are they all the ones
0: there's 192 cartoons <laughs> in the book. That's a good collection of cartoons, absolutely. How many did
1: you, did you know, have to
0: narrow it down from? Well, almost, probably over a 1,000.
1: Wow, I
0: mean... And that's... it's difficult because Britain has, is, has the best cartoonists in the world. No other country could produce a book of that depth and quality that's the thing, even Ameri- American cartooning is in dire straits there because we have this tradition in Britain of having national newspapers mm-hmm. and and cartoonists get a following throughout the whole country and um, for some reason we, we all the best cartoonists come to Britain and Absolutely. I would say Australia comes a sort of very distant second but no other country could you produce a book like this <laughs> Graham
1: I'm going to ask you as well Except except for your own Graham. Obviously yours are the best, we would say, at the YP. Who's whose cartoons are your favourite? Who do you I, I, kind I, of
0: midnight? You are?
2: always have to have a soft spot for for Peter Brooks. It's just just so good. Peter Brooks, Morton Morland, Dave Brown, and then you've got Ben Jennings who's just arriving on the scene. Obviously Steve Bell who's been around a while. Adams at the standard. So there's, there's so many Is is there, is there anyone you have not mentioned? <laughs> <laughs> you you cruel are you? <laughs> No, I mean you just look. At, you look at them all, and you sort of just take influence from each and every one of them because it is a very, very competitive industry. Um, it's a it's a good industry to be in. It's really, really fulfilling, but also you've got to you've got to stick at it and you've got to work hard at it to keep to keep in with that with that crowd. Um, particularly for myself, you know, with, with a provincial and not not quite a national as such. It's it's nice to sort of break into that elite elite
0: band of of cartoonists. Because there's only about five or six full-time political cartoonists at any one time. I'd just be happy to stay in that in that group. I know
2: when I first saw the book 2018 and got, got in that book with my Reese Mogg cartoon as, as dad did him up as Dad's army, I thought my aim is to get back in the book the year after. So year on year I've I've managed to get more cartoons in. So that that is good good for me. I'm just happy to sort of stay within that group and try and try and push them, you know, be the, be the noisy neighbour, so to speak. And the bribes that Graham
0: have given me have been very
1: useful. So. <laughs> They've kept things going. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose you, you, we were talking before we started recording, Tim, and you said you write an essay every year that goes with the book. Yes. And I did read it before I You did, I came. good. And one of the things I was interested in is you saying that, really, cartoons don't really retire Could you tell us a bit about that? They just kind of keep going.
0: Because it's like a vocation. Sure. And they've done it all their life. And they're scared that if they retire, it's like boxers. You know, once they retire, they always regret it. And then they come back and it's a disaster. And and cartoonists, they're terrified of, they love being in the centre of things. Uh, central politics. I mean, they're all political animals, and they feel that if they retire, there's no coming back because mm-hmm. their position is filled, and, and there's no chance. <laughs> uh, and so they just go on until either they are fired because they, as they get older, you know, their eyesight starts to go, uh, or they smoke and drink too much,
1: <laughs>
0: and um, they they either get, as I said, get fired, or they, you know, they die on the job. <laughs>
1: Is that you, Graham? Are you, going to have your, are, you, are you going to have your pencils in your hand until the day you die?
0: That's, it's not a bad way to go, is it? He's going to have something in his hand. But I was going to say, Peter Brooks said he's, go, he's literally going to have to be carried out.
1: Uh, well, there we go. I suppose you know, the only other thing that I wanted to kind of pick up on
3: today <laughs> is the
1: future of political journalism. We've heard, you know, that there aren't that many working at once. I mean, let's start from a regional perspective. Graeme, you know, we're obviously, and I don't want to make this a YP loving, <laughs> although it is the YP's political podcast, um, we, we are clearly still value that we've got you. Are you going to keep doing it for as long as you can?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when I first announced that I was going to be going behind a paywall, I got a lot of uh, negative comments. People thinking, oh, you're just doing it for the money and you're a big-time Charlie, but the reality is I didn't really have the reality is I didn't even have too much of a say. So I'm taking that as a compliment from from, from the editor, that he's, he values my work so much that he wants people to pay a premium price for it, which I've got to take it like that. And I do think it is it is a compliment. So I'm fully behind that idea.
1: You are a premium product, it's true. Are, are they
0: going to do this because um, they're going to put up this paywall because you're the highest paid journalist on the Yorkshire Post? <laughs> <laughs> you are kidding me. Oh brilliant. <laughs> but I
1: mean, Tim, from your perspective, as you know, the person that sees all these different cartoons cinema over the yeah. years, what, what what does the future look like for political cartoons?
0: Well, it depends on what happens to to print, to newspaper print. If newspaper print dies and just go everything goes online, then I do fear for political cartooning. I think I think it will suffer. The quality of political cartooning will suffer. It's already having to compete with memes by people who you know have no drawing talent whatsoever and if newspaper, newspaper circulations can carry on and the income can continue to come through newspapers then newspapers will still be able to hire the best people If everything goes online then wages will be severely reduced because most people online expect expect to see their news for free <laughs> exactly and that's
2: that's the stage we're at now tim we we value our stuff so much that we
0: don't want to be giving it away I don't, I don't know what you can do because the problem with social media is you can't monetize it you it's very difficult for cartoonists who lose their job suddenly say well i'm just going to put everything on my website that nobody's going to pay to see that yeah i mean with, there is a, there is an option of op- actually selling selling your
2: work in terms of prints or Moving, shifting originals on etc. Yeah, but
0: if you if you look at the present model, which where the independent is the only national newspaper online, their cartoonists are earning a fraction of what yeah. what the other newspapers cartoonists are, are earning, uh, which yeah. are still in print. And that I fear is the way it will go. And like gag cartooning, which you could earn a fantastic living from. Uh, about 60 years ago, mm. that they will just disappear. They'll go where the money is. And the great, you know, the Peter Brookses of this world and the Morton Morlands and the Day Browns will find uh, other avenues for their talents. This is the fear. But I prefer dead cartoonists because I don't have to deal with their egos. <laughs> So I like the historical side. So I'm all right.
1: <laughs> what a note to end on. <laughs> Graham, thank you so much for joining us on Pod Zone Country. Tim, thank you so much for coming on.
0: That's all right. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you can find this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Amazon Music. And we would really love it if you could take the time to leave us a review, to subscribe and to tell your friends. We'll be back next week and we'll speak to you then. You deserve more than a bank. At Money,
3: we understand that big decisions are easier to make when things work with you, not against.
0: So, whether you want to get a new car or landscape a summer garden escape, you'll find a loan that's built around you with our new low standard rate and simple process.
1: Visit OnPust.com forward slash loans or your local post office. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. OnPust acts as a credit intermediary on behalf
2: of Avant Card DAC. OnPust trading as OnPust money is authorised as a credit intermediary by the CCPC. Avant DAC trading as Avant Money is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.